0: Good morning, church. I am not preaching today. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> we invited David Pack here. He lives in Sacramento, California. Uh, his wife's back there, uh, Jennifer Pack. Uh, David, I've known David for probably 20 years. We used to be in ministry together uh, for a long time, and uh, we had a we had quite the characters in that ministry. Uh, they. Uh, He's a big personality. Uh, He cares for people. He's very compassionate, very honest. Um, We both went through a lot. And uh, he was always faithful to the church. Great man of God. And they jokingly referred to him as the Pope. (laughs) I was the Archbishop. (laughs) They reverently said that. But yes, so please uh, give a warm welcome to David Pack.
1: Some nicknames, you just want to disappear, and that was one of them. I had forgotten about that, so thanks for the good laugh. Thanks for having me uh, this morning. Uh, So growing up, one of my favorite pastimes was fighting with my younger brother, now, it didn't usually come to to blows or or, or anything like that, uh, but but any opportunity we had to to antagonize the other, uh, to show our superiority over others, or just to to prank the other one, there there was little restraint. And so, when it would get out of hand, inevitably our our parents would step in, and uh, they would insist that we act like civilized human beings. Now. Uh, Inevitably, once that happened, there were two phrases that would always come out of our mouths. The first one was, Mom, he is causing trouble. And then the second one was, he started it. Right? So naturally, if I could justify that he started it, which I always could, then I was off the hook to make peace with him. Well, many times old habits die hard. And while many of us, we grow up, we grow up in, in many aspects of that term, and, and while our language usually becomes more sophisticated than he started it, nonetheless, there's, there's a part of us that is often tempted to revert back to finger pointing and taking on a passive role when it comes to peacemaking. So in our passage today, Jesus is going to tell us, blessed are the peacemakers, not blessed are the finger pointers. (laughs) And so this statement of blessing, right, it comes in the context of Jesus, he's inaugurating a kingdom, a new way of living, one that is one to our flourishing, but one that often feels upside down and counterintuitive, and yet one that will meet the deepest longings of our heart and lead to our flourishing. Now, you as a church have been talking about boundaries since in the last month or or thereabouts, and I believe what we're going to see today is that it's so easy to drift back into operating under the kingdom of this world rather than the kingdom that Christ has brought and so apart from the boundary of God's word and the boundary of Christ's better kingdom, right, we, we, will, we will have nothing anchoring us and, and, and we will easily drift. And so I think what we're going to see today is that, that ultimately Christ's better kingdom provides an anchor to keep us from drifting into relational drowning. And so let's turn to our scripture, uh, which is ultimately, this is God's remedy to anchor our souls from this really strong, deceptively drifting current that sweeps us away. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in verses 3 through 12. Uh, If you've been around church, sometimes uh, these are referred to as the Beatitudes. So Matthew 5, 3 through 12. These are Jesus' statements of blessing. Matthew 5, 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In verse 9, this is going to be our key anchor text right here. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is alive and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it pierces our hearts. And Father, we pray now that your spirit would breathe life into our hearts, that you would illumine the eyes of our heart, that we would see clearly. Father, I pray that you would protect our minds from distraction and from drifting, And Father, I pray that as a result of sitting under your word, that we would think highly of you. We pray that your spirit would transform our hearts, that we would hunger and thirst for you. We pray that you would do the supernatural work of your word and your spirit to transform us into peacemakers, those who reflect the image of Christ, and we're dependent upon you to do this. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I realize that the topic of being a peacemaker has the potential to stir up all sorts of emotions. There may be feelings of guilt that are tempted to surface. There may be feelings of inferiority that come up as we look back and second-guess decisions that we've made. There may be feelings of resentment that are tempted to come up. And so I want to encourage us, let's keep two things in mind. First, is the heart of the one speaking these beatitudes towards us. Jesus' heart is never to condemn or crush his followers. Instead, it's to provide us with the grace and power in order to live into this flourishing life that he desires. And second, as we trust Jesus' heart towards us, I believe that we will be in a position to undergo significant healing and transformation today. So here's the trajectory. Here's how we're going to kind of tackle this one verse. First, we're going to look at the boundary of passivity in peacemaking. And then second, we're going to look at the boundary of people-pleasing in peacemaking. Right? So because of our tendency to drift, we need guardrails. So if you imagine driving down a spiritual highway, right, uh, we need boundaries on both sides to stay on the highway. So without the guardrails on one side, we will drift onto oncoming traffic, and yet without guardrails on the other side, we will end up in a ditch. And so Jesus's words serve as a gracious boundary to protect us from both passivity in peacemaking as well as people-pleasing in peacemaking. So first we're going to look at the boundary of passivity in peacemaking, in other words, how do we guard against just being passive in peacemaking, we're going to spend the bulk of our time in this. So the kingdom of this world will often tell us uh, to to wait until someone else makes the first move when it comes to peacemaking. As if we're playing a game of chess and we're we're just waiting for our opponent to move, right? And oftentimes we're told it's a sign of weakness to make the first move to initiate peace. And so how do we guard against that mentality trickling down into the church and therefore exhibiting passivity and peacemaking. So what we're to ask ourselves is what possibly has the internal capability to undergird the sometimes difficult, messy, and risky reality of being a peacemaker, right? What is it that fuels someone at times, right, to risk vulnerability, to risk possible rejection and setting aside of self to seek peace? And I know I, I know of only really one main one, and it's, it fits perfectly with what we did in communion this morning. So here's our passage, Colossians 1, it'll be up on the screen, 19 and 20, and we're going to really focus on 20, but it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is Christ, and through him, so in through Christ, to reconcile to him all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So that means while we were, while we were enemies of God, while we were resisting God, like Christ purchased our peace with God at great cost to himself. So, so that's, that's our basis. Peace has been initiated towards us. So this can't be an afterthought in our peacemaking. It's the source of our peacemaking. So the peace Jesus brought was a costly peace. And therefore, it stands to reason that his followers will emulate on an earthly level what he achieved on a cosmic level. Right. So the cost of the ultimate peace we have with God the Father was his literal life. And so in many cases, the cost of being a peacemaker will be our figurative lives. So there's a sense that in order to live into the fullness of peacemaking, like we will, it will feel like we will have to die, many does. We'll have to die to our pride. We'll have to die to being right. We'll have to die to the fact that I was the one who pursued peace last time. We'll have to die to the justifications that this person doesn't deserve it. We'll have to die to the fact that they're 51% at fault. We'll have to die to our We'll have to die to unbiblical definitions of love. We will have to die to bad advice from well-meaning friends. And at the end of the day, I know of nothing robust enough to encounter all of these different things than being inherently aware of the lengths that Christ has gone to to achieve peace for us. I know of no other motivation strong enough than one steeped in this vertical peace that we have that Christ achieved for us. Right? Let's think about it. If our motivation for peace is to get a certain response and then we don't get it, we'll be crushed or we'll be livid. And while we benefit from peacemaking, it's not at its core a self-serving endeavor. And therefore, any motivation of peacemaking that is not uh, rooted um, in this vertical peace that Christ has achieved for us, it won't last. So the, the driving force then the driving force making peace in our horizontal relationships, it flows out of the peace that has been made in our vertical relationship. And think about how that came, right? Just as vertical peace came knocking at our door by sheer grace, now we are to relentlessly imitate that vertical reality of peace in the way that we seek peace in our horizontal relationships. Right? But I may say, well, they started it. They're at least 80% at fault, yet Christ could say to me, you started it, and you're 100% at fault, but in spite of this reality, the one who had no fault initiated peace towards the one who had all the fault, right, and so do you see how our theology, like what we believe about God is meant to inform the way that we live? Notice how Paul, he's writing a letter to the Philippian church. Notice how he goes about appealing to them to live as peacemakers. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8, we'll have it up here on the screen for you to look at. Philippians 2, 3 through 8, and and I want to just encourage you as we go through this, notice a connection between the vertical and the horizontal here. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. So Paul is saying to the church, do, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of the others. And right, So we're on board so far. That makes great sense. Now, verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. All right, so he's going to appeal to the vertical piece now. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the beauty of this is he doesn't merely give them an isolated moral command, just grounded in self-improvement. No, he grounds the command in first what has been done on their behalf, and then it says, imitate on a horizontal level what has already been done for you on a vertical level. So the promise in this verse, that peacemakers, they'll be called children of God. Right? So we bear the family resemblance by laying down our rights to make peace. So Jesus, as the ultimate peacemaker, laid down his rights in order to point people to the Father. And therefore, much of our living into being a peacemaker will look like us imitating our Lord by laying down our rights and instead of doing pointing them to the Father. This is so counterintuitive in the world that we live in, right? We're conditioned to lash out first. We're conditioned to look out for number one. And yet this in no way it bears the family resemblance. So the act of being a peacemaker particularly at the expense of our own rights, it demonstrates to a watching world that we value peace to such an extent that we're even willing to be wronged in certain situations without making someone pay. So one of our highest calls are to be instruments of God that seek to make peace between people and God. Paul says we're, we're ministers of reconciliation. So the book of 1 Corinthians is a book that Paul wrote to a a very troubled church, to to put it nicely, and and in chapter 6, we read, they're taking each other to court, They're they're taking Christians to court, and Paul says, look, it's actually, it's better to be wronged than you go air your grievances in front of an unbelieving world, and that reflect poorly upon Christ. Now, there are two instances in the book of Matthew, just pastor Beatitudes, where Jesus addresses ways to make peace where it had previously been broken. Right now, in a worldly sense, we would say, well, we know what he's going to say, right? He's, he's going to tell the person who messed up, go make it right, and the person who's wronged, go ahead and sit back and, and just do nothing. I, I'm setting you up, by the way. Uh, so let's just see if our logic checks out. Let's just turn to the words of Jesus. We're going to move on. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. This is what it says up on the screen. Uh, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, so a place of worship, and and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. This is amazing. you notice in the context here, Jesus puts a higher premium on peacemaking than even worship. So in this case, Jesus puts the burden of peacemaking uh, upon the person who did the offending. And that makes sense, I think, to our human logic. Uh, and that's what we expect. But before we maybe we get a little too giddy, let's just move on Matthew 18, verse 15. And let's notice what this says here. If your brother or sister sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. By the way, when I hear the Bible pages flipping, I love it. Great, beautiful sound, so keep, keep, keep it up. And, and Matthew 18, the, the initiative for peacemaking lies in the one who was actually sinned against. But in Matthew 5, the, the initiative for peacemaking lies in the one who did the sinning. So that means whether the offended party or the one who did the offending, Jesus puts a call on peacemaking to both. Right? I don't see any, anywhere any guidelines that act as a sliding scale that say, well, until I'm at least 51% at fault, I don't have to pursue peacemaking. But right? according to Jesus, then, if if peace has been disrupted between two Christians in, in an ideal situation, they would meet in the middle. And while we often associate confrontation as the opposite of peacemaking, Jesus often associates biblical confrontation as the gateway to peacemaking. So the commitment to peacemaking, it, it grows in the soil of meekness and it wilts in the soil of pride. Right? The pursuit of peacemaker, peacemaking, means that I will no longer pursue the need to be right. And being a peacemaker will inevitably be a call to act in spite of our feelings. And so let's not equate being a peacemaker with warm and fuzzy feelings on the inside. Those are called emotions, not peacemaking. In some ways, the most mature demonstrations of peacemaking may take place absent of any feelings whatsoever. It's a mature form of love. It's elevating the words of scripture over and above our feelings. It's submitting to Christ over and above our feelings, right? If if I wait to feel like making peace, chances are I might never make peace. And we have to be okay with the reality that sometimes in our faith, feelings will follow obedience rather than lead to obedience, And obedience isn't any less important simply because it's a dry obedience. If we insisted on our actions, or if we insisted on our feelings to be a catalyst for our actions, we may be in a perpetual standoff when it comes to making peace. If our horizontal peace is grounded in our vertical peace, and meant to imitate that vertical peace that we have, then peacemaking is far more than the avoidance of conflict. It's the pursuit of people's joy and flourishing in Christ, right? That's why both Jesus and Paul say, they don't say be neutral towards your enemies, but move towards your enemies, feed them, greet them. Don't feed your animosity and apathy through avoidance. And a conflict avoided is a conflict postponed. And the way to change your inner disposition towards your enemies is to change your outer presentation towards your enemies. Jesus' whole life was a life of moving towards others. It was a life of pursuit. And as we move towards others by putting ourselves out there, by listening to them, working towards peace, it's often then and only then that the feelings begin to form. So we have to be careful not to equate mentally disengaging with peacemaking. All right, so we've seen we've really focused on kind of one critical boundary up to this point. Uh, And this prevents us from drifting onto that oncoming traffic on one side of that spiritual highway. So let's now look at the other boundary in peacemaking that will keep us out of the ditch on the other side. Now, the beautiful thing about Jesus' words, uh, they, these Beatitudes, they build upon one another. And so one of, our, uh, one of the keys to really mining the precious uh, diamonds of peacemaking is to do so through the lens of purity of heart, which is the Beatitude that comes right before the Beatitude on peacemaking. So these Beatitudes are, they're ordered very purposely by Jesus. So now let's look at the boundary of people-pleasing. And what we want to do now is look at how do we, by God's grace, guard against an excessive uh, people-pleasing that really isn't peacemaking. So I want to take us to a a, a verse actually in the book of James that I think further brings clarity um, to the order of purity of heart and peacemaking. So James 3 uh, verse 17, I will, it'll be up here on the screen, uh, I don't know how you guys, I, I like to involve people, so let's read the scripture together, hope that's okay to do here, you're not going to kick me out for doing this, Ben, all right, so let's read this together, right? uh, scripture is awesome, and, and let's read it as a church, uh, James 3:17. but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Amen. Great voices. I love the energy. So the wisdom from above is first what? Then? Ah, isn't that? Okay, think about our beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, and then blessed are the peacemakers. So that means peacemaking is subservient to purity. So that means true peacemaking will never come at the expense of compromising biblical values. It will flow out of biblical values. We strive for peace. We work for peace. We sacrifice for peace. But we never abandon our allegiance to Christ and his word for a counterfeit peace. If your obedience to Christ causes tension... You are not living in opposition to being a peacemaker, but in step with being a peacemaker. Right? Christ came to make peace between God and man. He was obedient to death, and yet some refused peace. Uh, the prince of peace had violence poured out upon him. And the answer wasn't to compromise, because peacemaking would have denigrated into people-pleasing. So a peacemaking life will not always equate to a trouble-free life, right? The beatitude that follows, "Blessed are the peacemakers," further cements this concept. Jesus says, "Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake." So righteousness is not to be compromised in order to obtain peace with persecutors. Instead, the goal of peace is submitted to righteousness. Now, perhaps you've had a thought at some point in life, or even today, does being a peacemaker, does that just mean I let people walk all over me? And to that, I'd say that the letting people walk over us in a way that is sinful is not the definition of being a peacemaker according to Jesus. It's not submitting peace to purity or to righteousness. And where the waters can get murky for us is we have a hard time distinguishing between being a peacemaker and a people-pleaser. And these are not the same. They're actually polar opposites. And when we mistake people-pleasing for peacemaking, we can settle for a counterfeit peace, one that is superficial because it's based upon conforming to someone else's ideologies rather than Christ's ideologies. When we feel like we have to live in a perpetual state of compromise in order to gain someone's approval, that is not peacemaking. When we find ourselves in those situations, we will have to risk a false peace in order to possibly obtain a true peace, a superficial peace, for a genuine peace. We will have to submit being at peace to someone, to purity and righteousness, and trust, that, trust God with the results. Look at what Paul says in Romans 12, Romans 12, 18, right here. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If possible, that means it won't always be possible, but let's not... Allow the rupture in the relationship be as a result of us not making every biblical effort for peace. Also, let us not confuse peacemaking with peace achieving. Peace achieving will be above our pay grade. We can't control human hearts. Peacemaking is risky in that we're not guaranteed a certain outcome. We're not guaranteed that our commitment to peace will be reciprocated. But we never need to shy away from a risk that is grounded in obedience to Christ. And the promise in this verse is blessed are the peacemakers, not blessed are those who have their efforts reciprocated by others. And one of our barriers to peacemaking is we're trying to calculate out the next 25 steps if we go to someone And what's going to happen like a chess match? And Jesus is saying, take the next step of obedience. Don't stop the journey because you can't see the end of the road. Be faithful in the next step. So what is that next step of obedience for you? Is it to break the stalemate of simmering resentment towards someone and therefore to move towards them as Christ moved towards you? Or? Is it to stop compromising in order to gain someone's approval? Perhaps what you thought was peacemaking has actually been people-pleasing. Or is your response to truly just meditate and reflect on the fact that you have peace with God through Christ? Think about the pursuit of you. We, We long for people to pursue us. Think that Christ came from heaven to earth to pursue you. And that is worthy of our meditation and reflection. And so, friends, uh, this vertical peace we have, it's the best news ever. This means that we don't have to live this beatitude out in our own grit or our own determination. He gives us new hearts with new desires. He puts a spirit within us to make things that are humanly impossible possible. And, friends, if, if there is anyone who doesn't have peace with God through Christ, This beatitude is unobtainable. Like, we can't give away what we don't have. Sin has fractured our peace with God. And the only way for that fracture to be mended is through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, who is able to reset that which was previously broken. Like, we can't leave that part of our lives undone and think that we can be peacemakers. Apart from peace with God, we will look for people to be for us what only God can be for us. And that will never breed peacemaking. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. And so as we close, I want to ask us to consider the matchless grace of our Savior who traveled from heaven to earth to make peace with you. Consider the heart of the one who had no conflict, yet entered a world full of conflict to make peace with you consider the love of the one who pursued you when you weren't even looking for him consider the one who could have saved himself and instead chose to save you consider the one who could have obliterated his enemies and yet he chose peace on your behalf the one who went to those lengths to make vertical peace between you and god will surely empower you to make peace in your horizontal relationships. The more in focus our vertical peace becomes, the more naturally horizontal peace will follow. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for these words, and admittedly, these are, these are hard words. We are so grateful that your love for us is such that, that you don't shy away from telling us the truth. But, Father, the good news here also is that you don't tell us to go pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and figure it out on our own, but you put your spirit within us. You have modeled this in the coming of your Son. And God, I pray that that reality, that he has made peace between us and you, Father, God, I pray that wouldn't be just intellectual news. I pray that that news would penetrate our hearts, and I pray it would compel us to imitate that to a watching world. And so, Father, I pray by your grace and by your Spirit, you would empower us to live into this beatitude. Yeah, we thank you that you are a God who is able, even when it feels like we are not. And so, God, as we sing this last song, I pray that the, the many ways that you are able, your great faithfulness would really resonate within our hearts and minds. And I pray that your Spirit would bring just the right things to mind in our heart, that we be faithful in a response to your word. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.